On February 5th, top Trump administration officials briefed U.S. senators on the steps they were taking to deal with the coronavirus threat emanating from China. The gist of the message seemed to track the comments from President Trump. No need to be unduly alarmed. We got this under control. But one senator, Democrat Chris Murphy of Connecticut, was more than a little concerned. Just left the administration briefing on coronavirus, he tweeted that day. Bottom line, they aren't taking this seriously enough. Notably, no request for any emergency funding, which is a big mistake. Local health systems need supplies, training, screening, staff, etc., and they need it now. Today, with the number of coronavirus cases inside the U.S. about to hit 100,000 and the number of deaths close to 1,500, Murphy's reaction seems positively prophetic. We'll talk to Senator Murphy on where and why the Trump administration dropped the ball. And we'll get a take from Jay Johnson, President Obama's former Homeland Security Secretary, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So the numbers look worse and worse. 100,000 cases were about to hit. Hospitals under siege, uh, vastly under-equipped to deal with the influx of patients. It does not look at this moment like there is light at the end of this very dark tunnel. Well, it's exactly what the experts have been warning for weeks now. But some people in Washington, namely in the White House, have kind of been dismissing, which is that the numbers, it was going to get a lot worse before it gets better. The numbers were going to start going up exponentially, and that was going to start to have a huge impact on our healthcare system. That is exactly what's happening. You're seeing many more examples of healthcare workers who are becoming infected. You're seeing just grim, awful stories about 11 people dying in one hospital. And people are saying it is going to continue to get worse for weeks before we start to flatten the curve. And so um, get ready. And the mixed messaging from the White House is still with us and still very prevalent. Most recently, and we're going to get into this with Senator Murphy, on the whether the president needs to use his powers under the Defense Production Act to order companies to make these ventilators and other equipment that are so desperately needed right now. You know, I hope everybody does listen to this conversation that we had with Chris Murphy, the Democratic senator from Connecticut. He was pissed and very passionate about the subject and and all of the things that he believes the White House has screwed up in terms of its response to this crisis. But when I asked him, if you had a magic wand, what is it that you would wish that you could get the president to do? And he said, stop sending the mixed messages. Of all of the things that he's done, in some ways, that has the most kind of ill effect here. And a classic example of that was actually playing out as we were interviewing him. And this is on the question of of ventilators. So we recorded this today on Friday. Last night, Thursday night, president was on Sean Hannity, and he was pushing back at Andrew Cuomo, who's been begging the federal government for more ventilators, saying they needed 30 or 40,000 ventilators to deal with the huge shortage and the massive onslaught of patients who are coming into the hospitals now. And what does Trump say? Says, I don't believe that they need 30 or 40,000. Yet that's an exaggeration. This morning in the New York Times, there's a story about how General Motors and a, a company called Ventco, who were in a collaboration, they were going to be making, they said, 80,000 ventilators. It turned out that FEMA, 
wasn't sure they wanted to actually have them do this because the cost was going to be prohibitive. A billion dollars is what it was going to cost. Well, a billion dollars seems like a uh, drop in the bucket when we just passed a or about to pass a two trillion dollar stimulus bill. But meanwhile, uh, General Motors was saying, well, maybe they're not going to be able to produce eighty thousand. Maybe it's going to be eight thousand or seventy five hundred. Well, the president then, as we're interviewing. Chris Murphy starts tweeting about this, totally changes his tune. I'll read you the tweet here. It says, with a lot of exclamation points, a lot of misplaced quotes, it says, General Motors, quote, must immediately open their stupidly abandoned Lordstown plant in Ohio or some other plant and start making ventilators now, five exclamation points. And then he says, Ford, get going on ventilators fast. Another Six exclamation points. So this is a classic example of the kind of whiplash that we are getting from this president. And, you know, it's not exactly leadership at a time when I think we need kind of clear leadership from the top. Well, clear and consistent messaging is, uh, shall we say, not a forte of this president. Uh, It's almost as though it doesn't matter to him if everything he said yesterday is wrong and he needs to correct it today. He'll never admit that. He just switches gears, changes his tune, and pretends that everything that came before never happened. Uh, But it did. Well, a perfect—and a perfect example of that— was having said recently, no one expected a pandemic, you know, and it turns out that the Trump administration has, you know, many reports, they were doing exercises, everyone was expecting that this is the kind of thing that could happen. Maybe it didn't travel up to the Oval Office, but, you know, he does not like to admit that he was ever wrong about anything, it seems. Right. One guy who did take this seriously very early on is uh, Chris Murphy of Connecticut. We've got him on the phone, so let's get right to it. We now have with us Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut. We understand he is talking to us in a car on the uh, New Jersey Turnpike. I think this is a first for Skullduggery, a New Jersey Turnpike guest. Senator, welcome to Skullduggery. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be a first. So this is my new method of transportation. I figured I should model better transit behavior. So uh, less flights back and forth to Connecticut, more long drives. The good news is that the uh, roads are pretty clear. <laughs> you know, actually, that does occur to me. Now, New Jersey requires when you stop for gas, uh, you can't do it yourself. They have to do it for you. Are the gas stations open and uh, are um, gas station workers filling up the tanks? You know, I have not stopped yet in New Jersey, but the Connecticut rest stops are open, limited service, but they are serving people if you want to stop in and fill up your tank and uh, get some takeout. So uh, to be determined in, in New Jersey. All right, let's get to some substance here. The Senate has passed 97 to zero, the emergency relief bill, $2 trillion. The House seems poised to do so today, although there's some I guess uh, one Republican may require everybody to come back or is requiring everybody to come back by not uh, agreeing to unanimous consent. How much do you think this is real? This package is really going to help. It obviously has a lot of provisions that people on both sides had reservations about. How comfortable are you with the package as it passed the Senate? Uh, So I'm very comfortable with the package that passed the Senate. And I think it was very important for us to take our time. We spent two extra days negotiating with the administration and Senator McConnell to get a bill in the end that was much, much better than the initial version introduced by the majority leader. But it is important to reinforce the fact that if we don't comply with the orders being given to us by governors, uh, by the recommendations made by the CDC, there is nothing in this piece of legislation that can end this epidemic. This is not a public health response that can be carried out by government alone. There's no amount of economic stimulus that can stop COVID-19. It is all up to us. And so I'm very pleased that we are going to be able to 
save the economy from catastrophe and make sure that hospitals have what they need in order to continue to respond to this epidemic. But the solution, our salvation, is really in all of our hands. And so you know, that's why I do worry gravely about these mixed messages that continue to be sent by the administration about how long we're going to engage in social distancing, whether we're just sometime around Easter, because everything in that bill is meaningless unless we are all personally very serious about engaging in the best practices necessary to repel the virus. Well, let me follow up on that, Senator, because there are some things that you personally, along with Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, have done to try to deal with the public health emergency. And and that is you've introduced legislation called the Medical Supply Chain Emergency Act, which is supposed to deal with this uh, catastrophic shortfall of medical equipment by essentially federalizing medical supplies uh, in this country, the manufacturing and distribution of them. So tell us what your legislation does, how it would work, and why you think it'll be effective. So there is no danger of overreacting right now. As the number of people infected grow by leaps and bounds every single day, as more hotspots are created all across the country, we need to take drastic measures. And what the most immediate threat to our response is, is the shortage of masks, of gowns, of tests and ventilators. And the private supply chain has just quite simply broken down. We aren't making enough of those things. And then just as importantly, the equipment is not ending up in the areas of highest need. When you are relying on a private supply chain, you are encouraging hoarding and you are encouraging gouging. And we need to have the federal government temporarily come in and take control of the medical supply chain, at least with respect to critical supplies necessary for the COVID-19 response, and make sure that we have enough manufacturers making this stuff. And then once it's made, that it's ending up in the areas of highest need. Um, And that just cannot happen today in what is essentially a Lord of the Flies environment where every single state and every single hospital is left to essentially fend for themselves and try to scrounge together as much equipment as they can. Today in Connecticut, our testing is slowing down. We are going to do less tests today than we did yesterday, which is an abomination. The reason for that is simply the shortage of equipment. We don't have enough masks and we don't have enough gear in order to equip all the folks who are doing our drive-through testing. We got to fix that. Yeah, let me let me follow up on that for a second because there's something I, I know there's a a public health rationale for that, but there's something almost perverse about ramping down testing at a moment like this. In other words, people will not be able to find out if they're sick. If they don't know whether they're sick, it's more likely that they will spread the disease. But I guess the point is, is that you don't want people who are not critically ill to overwhelm the healthcare system. Is that the rationale? For federalizing the supply chain? No, no. For ramping. I mean, you you said that, and I think Governor Lamont in Connecticut uh, announced that you're going to be decreasing testing for a few days. Right. Yeah. No, the, right. The, the reason is that right now we just don't have the capacity to put um, medical staff um, both out on the front lines doing drive-through testing and in our inpatient and bed surge units. And so we're having to sort of draw back healthcare professionals from the drive-through testing sites into the hospitals so that we're uh, sort of prioritizing personal protective equipment for the folks that are the sickest. But that means there are going to be a lot of folks who are symptomatic who won't get tested. And well, the governor has told them that they should self-diagnose and self-quarantine, what we know is that, you know, human nature is human nature. And for a lot of people, unless they actually have that confirmation that they are positive for COVID-19, they may not actually quarantine and their relatives and people who've been in contact with them may not actually quarantine. And so it is very dangerous that we're having to 
pull back testing, do less testing in Connecticut simply because of this supply shortage. Senator, let me ask you, uh, you're Senator from Connecticut, obviously Connecticut borders New York, the epicenter of the uh, uh, pandemic at the moment. And uh, you heard the um, recommendation from Dr. Burks that anybody who's been in New York should uh, self-quarantine for 14 days. You got people going back and forth between Connecticut and New York all the time time, people who work in New York, who uh, take the railroads there uh, every, or were taking them every day. How does that self-quarantine order or recommendation for anybody who's been in New York, how does that work in a state like yours on the border? Yeah, I mean, you really have to think of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut as, you know, one unit, right? There's a border between Connecticut and New York, but as you mentioned, there are tens of thousands of people every single day who are going back and forth. And many of them are um, mission critical employees. You have a lot of folks working in the hospitals in New York that are living in Connecticut and vice versa. And so it is simply unrealistic to suggest that anybody who's in New York quarantines for 14 days before they return to Connecticut. There are nurses that are going back and forth every single day. That being said, we have already seen the recommendations and the best practices handed down by the governor of New York and Connecticut have an effect. Metro North ridership, which is the train that goes back and forth from Connecticut to New York City, is down 95%. So it is the case that it seems only essential personnel already are moving back and forth from Connecticut. And so that's really good news. It suggests that the measures that have been taken um, have had a pretty substantial effect on limiting the people that are going back and forth between the two states. I want to just get back to your legislation for one second, because I think what it would do is basically order, force the president to implement the Defense Protection Act. And we know he has signed it, he's invoked it, but he's not really as far as I know, really pulled the trigger on it. Are you seeing any evidence that he's using the DPA? Um, If not, uh, why not? And what do you make of that? He's not using it, and he's not using it for a political reason, uh, not for a reason connected to best practices uh, with respect to the response to COVID-19. I will hopefully get on the phone uh, later today with the White House. Uh, I've been trying to set up a phone call with them for the last 48 hours to talk about this. But from what I understand, the president is getting pushback from right-wing ideologues, from those who believe that the private sector can fix any and all problems that confront the nation. These are the same people that argue for the privatization of our elementary schools. This is a huge mistake because, while the private sector can solve a lot of problems. There are just built-in inefficiencies to the private sector's uh, management of supply chain during a crisis like this. The private sector does not send goods to areas of highest need. The private sector sends goods to those that are willing to pay the most. And those two things don't correlate very often at a moment like this. In fact, the places of highest need often have the least amount of money available to pay for the supply. So from what I understand, the National Chamber of Commerce and other sort of conservative free market ideologues inside the White House are arguing for the president to not use the Defense Production Act simply because they philosophically disagree with the idea that government should play any role in the management of supplies at a time like this. I've got to say, Senator and Mike, as if just on cue, as you were talking and talking about some of the issues with the private sector, President Trump just tweeted, as usual with in quote in in quotes this i'm not quite sure why general motors things just never seem to work out they said they were going to give us 40,000 much needed ventilators very quickly also in quotes now they are saying it will only be 6,000 in late april and they want top dollar always a mess with mary b invoke p so i mean that seems to make your point, although the president is making it himself, he's leaving it up to the private sector and then saying that they can't get it done. Yeah. And listen, they they, they can't without direction from the federal government. This idea that the the private sector was just going to voluntarily step up, you know, I I mean, ultimately just what was was a fantasy. There are lots of private companies that are going to step up and do the right thing. 
but without coordination from the federal government. And again, it's not just the coordination of manufacturing. It's the coordination of manufacturing and distribution to make sure that once those companies make the gowns, make the masks, um, they, they end up in the places that need them the most. And I, I don't know why the president doesn't fix this. It is literally costing lives. In Connecticut, we are doing less testing today because the president has not invoked the Defense Production Act. As long as we're uh, reading tweets, I want to read an even better one that just came on my Twitter feed from, um, of all people, John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, talking about uh, Congressman Massey, who is uh, apparently is demanding that the House return to vote on the uh, relief bill. He just uh, wrote breaking, tweeted, breaking news, Congressman Massey has tested positive for being an asshole. So, <laughs> anyway, let me ask you about the relief package, though, because I know that there was a lot of debate and concern among Democrats about the, what was it, $500 billion bailout fund that the Treasury was going to control, determining which companies uh, would get bailout uh, relief and which would not. And a lot of Democrats had concern with giving the Trump administration the discretion to uh, pick winners and losers and companies that it wanted to um, get funds to. Did you modify that um, before it passed? And how comfortable are you with that part of the relief package? I'm not comfortable with that part of the relief package. Uh, listen, ultimately, you know, we're passing a bill through a Republican-controlled Senate that needs to be signed by a Republican president. And one of their priorities was having this $500 billion loan facility and having discretion over it. Now, we took away some of that discretion. We limited funds so that it can't be used to help uh, the president, his family members, or any member of Congress or their family members. And we also put some pretty significant transparency on the funds so that within, I think, a matter of days, any disbursement of funds has to be noticed to the public. And then we also put in place an inspector general with subpoena power that we can look into any egregious abuses of that fund. But in order to get the $150 billion for states in order to get the money for nutrition programs and for hospitals. You know, we ultimately did have to allow the administration some discretion. We made that fund, I think, a lot tighter, a lot more transparent a lot more oversight than it had initially. We've spent a lot of time on this show talking about what the impact uh, coronavirus is going to have on the election this year. Um, Connecticut was due to have its primary on April 28th. Uh, I see that's been uh, pushed back to June 2nd, but still a lot of questions about how we're going to get through the remaining primaries, about whether we're going to have a uh, have conventions in the summer, and uh, if this goes on for a while, how, what the impact is going to be on the fall election itself. How concerned are you about, first of all, getting the, the needed primaries, including the one in Connecticut, pulling them off uh, without endangering the public, and then where we go from there. Uh, are we going to be able to have conventions and what steps need to be taken now to make sure the fall election takes place on time without disruptions? Yeah, well, listen, I'm very worried. In Connecticut, we are taking steps to allow for more individuals to be able to cast their ballot by absentee ballot. We, unfortunately and unbelievably in Connecticut, uh, don't have a mail-in system. And this, I hope, will cause the voters of the state of Connecticut to decide to support an amendment to the Constitution to Connecticut to allow us to do that. But we have to also be encouraging other states as we get ready for the fall election to make modifications to allow more people potentially to be able to cast their vote. Wait a second. Senator, are you saying that Connecticut does not have mail-in voting? No, we have one of the strictest in-person voting systems in the nation. In fact, we have absentee ballot voting only for individuals who can prove that they cannot show up on Election Day. And so a bastion of progressivity like Connecticut has one of the most onerous backwards voting systems in the country. We actually have to pass a constitutional amendment to change that, and we have not done it yet. Well, can you do that by June 2nd when the uh, primary is due to take place? We can't do it by June 2nd. We're looking into what measures we could take in time for the November election. 
Um, and yes, we are also, I'm also very concerned about the November election. I don't know how this affects conventions. Uh, I, I hope that the DNC and RNC are making alternative plans. It certainly looks as if neither convention will be contested. But I think our bigger worry is the November election and, you know, making sure that states are taking measures to allow for folks to vote uh, by mail or by absentee. And then, frankly, just recognizing that um, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to hold a normal election in November if we do the right things right now. Other countries have shown us that you can turn the corner on this virus in a matter of months if you get serious about closures and social distancing and testing and tracking. And so, uh, you know, we would be better off just sort of focusing on the medical problem right now, um, because if we do that robustly and with discipline, then we will be in a position to hold a relatively normal election in November. Senator, I want to just ask you to uh, step back for a second and talk a little bit about preparedness, because I know that you've been thinking about how important it is once we get through this crisis to be prepared for the next one. I think you attended some early uh, administration briefings, and, and I think I, I saw on your Twitter feed that you were pretty appalled how the administration wasn't taking this seriously. So I'd like you to address that. But also, what are some of the specific steps that you think we need to take to be prepared for the next time so that we're not caught flat-footed the way we appear to have been this time? Yeah, I mean, it was just amazing to me in the early days of this virus, back in February, how cavalier this administration was. Um, we had this briefing, uh, I think, on February 5th, uh, in which it was just so clear to us that the administration didn't think this was going to be a problem. We begged them in that meeting to request emergency funding from the from the Congress, and they told us inside that meeting that they didn't need emergency funding, that they had everything that they... Uh, needed on hand, which was false then and, of course, proved to be disastrous later on. So, yeah, we're going to have to very quickly step back and learn lessons. That obviously means dramatically increasing the domestic ability to produce the kind of equipment you need in the face of a pandemic. But it also means taking a new look at our international system of public health preparedness and protection. Um, it is true that the president dramatically decreased our ability to work with other nations to stop pandemics before they reach the United States. Uh, and we're going to have to rebuild all of that. So I'm actually working as we speak on a proposal to upscale a lot of our international public health preparedness programs so that we can be in a better position to stop something like coronavirus before it gets to the United States. And we're not going to be able to wait on that because, you know, viruses aren't going to schedule themselves um, according to what's convenient for America, there could be another one at our doorstep next spring. And so we're going to have to scale up all of this at the same time that we are responding to the current virus. But I just want to follow up on one thing he said. Who in the White House said that it wasn't necessary to get emergency funding? Who were you talking to? Secretary Azar. At the time, Secretary Azar was leading the response in early February. He was leading the briefing that we all attended in early February, but he was not alone. Uh, there were representatives from the White House in that meeting who also said that they didn't need emergency funding, that they would be able to handle it within existing appropriations. Um, and I walked out of that meeting and, and tweeted, I think, that uh, you referenced this, this, this post on social media I made. I said, listen, you know, states need supplies right now. We can't wait. We need to appropriate dollars today. And so and I was not alone in that sentiment. There were lots of us who knew that this was going to be a crisis that needed to be pre-funded. And it was Secretary Azar and others in that meeting at the time who did not believe that we needed to ramp up as early as the beginning of February. What a what? awful, horrible, catastrophic mistake that was. What would that funding, the emergency funding that you were calling for in early February, what would it have been used for? It would have been used to to start hiring staff at the, uh, at the local level who could do testing and screening. It would have started work on a vaccine and treatments much earlier, and it would have started to allow the United States to stockpile supply. And I will tell you, that is a critical error. And let me just give you one example. I was on the phone with Connecticut's lab yesterday, who are, they're doing some of the testing for, the, for COVID-19 in Connecticut they are unable to get the reagent that is necessary to do the testing. 
the whole world is competing for a reagent right now. Much of the reagent comes from outside of the United States. Had we appropriated money in February to start buying reagents, we would be in a position to do many more tests today than we are. And so by waiting even just three weeks, four weeks, we put ourselves in a position where we are short supplied uh, across the board. Uh, testing uh, reagent is just one example. And the consequences of that has been? The consequences in, of that in Connecticut is that we're going to test less people today than we tested yesterday. And that means that there are lots of people who are positive who are not going to know it, who are then going to be in contact with other people who are going to spread the disease. Um, that's the consequence. Wasn't the screw up on testing because of the FDA and they were uh, not approving the tests or didn't think they met its standards and that that was the reason for the bottleneck on testing? Well, the bottleneck on testing is probably first and foremost due to our decision not to take the WHO test. So we had a test that was easily replicable, that had been verified, that was ready to go in January. And so had we made the decision in January to take the WHO test and appropriated dollars to start building out the infrastructure in January or February, we'd be in a much different position today. But instead, we waited until mid-February to start developing our own tests which, by the way, didn't work at first, and we didn't appropriate the dollars necessary to build out the testing infrastructure. We should have been you know, demanding that Quest scale up their private sector ability and giving them money to do it in February. We did none of that. Uh, and now we're in the position where you know, we're going to be able to do on a daily basis probably 30 percent, 20 percent of the tests that we should be able to do. Well, Senator, we uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time. There's uh, so much that needs to be examined here. I guess my last question for you is uh, right now, obviously, everybody has to be focused on getting through this pandemic and maintaining the social distancing restrictions that can flatten the curve. But will there be a time soon for oversight to explore and investigate how these critical decisions were made or not made by the administration? I mean, yes, of course. And as I said, we're going to have to learn fast because the next virus isn't going to wait. But I also argue that now is not the time to give the administration a pass. You know, I've been amongst those who have been very tough on the administration and very critical of them. And sometimes I get accused of you know, playing politics. And this is not a time that we should be, you know, criticizing the administration. We should all be rallying together. Well, the only way to pressure the administration to stop being an abysmal failure when it comes to the way in which they are letting us down on response to the coronavirus is to point out how they're failing on a daily basis to make it clear to the American people that President Trump has botched this response from day one. And if we don't do that, in the name of depoliticizing the response to coronavirus, then we are failing in our responsibility to point out when the administration has gone wrong, like they have on testing and on recommendations for uh, best emergency practices. Uh, and we uh, basically um, forego the opportunity to try to pressure them to be better. So, yeah, we've got to do some broad, comprehensive oversight of what went wrong when we're through the woods here. But we also right now have to be pointing out how the administration is failing us. Okay, last question from me. This will be a quick one. But if you had a magic wand, Senator, and you could get this president to do one thing that would help this crisis, what would you want him to do? Stop sending mixed messages about how individuals need to conduct themselves. What I'm most worried about right now is that the president is just going to get sort of tired of these emergency measures that are, by the way, largely being handed down by governors and mayors, not by the federal government. And the result will be that people will you know, start coming out of their homes, that businesses will start to reopen, and we will end up with a healthcare system in absolute catastrophic failure. So uh, as much as I want them to federalize the supply chain, what I'm most worried about right now is a president who is just going to give up and listen to people like the lieutenant governor of uh, Texas, who seem to be willing to let millions of vulnerable people die in order to preserve some sort of sliver of the economy. 
Senator, thanks for joining us uh, from the New Jersey Turnpike. I hope uh, things go smoothly on the rest (laughs) of your trip, and we hope to uh, have you back on Skullduggery to see how these things play out. Thanks for everything you guys do. Uh, It's a pleasure. We now have with us Jay Johnson, the former Secretary of Homeland Security under President Obama. Secretary Johnson, welcome back to Skullduggery. Mike, Dan, thanks for having me back. I enjoyed our discussion last time. I wanted to get start out just by getting your sense of where we are right now as a country. One thing that leapt out at me, I'm looking at the latest numbers in which we're closing in on 100,000 cases. We've now surpassed China as the most in the world, over 1,400 deaths. And one milestone that occurred to me is at this rate, by midweek next week, the number of coronavirus deaths will likely surpass the number of Americans who were killed during the September 11th terror attacks. I thought that's a number that will get some attention next week. I don't know if you've thought about it, but I would just like to get your take on the rate of cases and deaths and where you think we are. Well, as I speak, we're globally somewhere well over 500,000 cases, 24,000 deaths. As you've pointed out, the U.S. is now surged past China in terms of confirmed cases, and China's where all of this began. And here in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, we're probably about half the entire country. Yesterday was a surge in new cases of about 16,000. So this thing is not just a bell curve. It's like a, a rocket headed straight up And we don't know when the curve will be flattened. We don't know if we've seen bottom yet. And so it's extremely disconcerting in in that sense. And we still haven't got a handle on getting enough test kits, getting enough ventilators. And so this is a once in a century unprecedented nationwide crisis but it is not unpredictable. We got a taste of this with the Ebola virus in 2014. And I have to say, following that experience, the threat of a lethal pandemic has been something that has been uppermost on the minds of Homeland Security officials over the last five, six years. But we still don't know what bottom is yet. And one of the concerns that I've been very public about is there seems to be a very basic misapprehension about the roles of the federal, state, and local governments nationwide. Some people, including, I'm afraid, people at the very top of the U.S. government, seem to believe that they could just decree that by Easter Sunday, we all go back to work and life is normal. And first of all, that is extremely unlikely to be the case that we'll be in a position to do that. Second, Whether or not I have to stay home at my home in Montclair, New Jersey, is a matter for the governor of New Jersey, who has issued an order commanding all of us to, to the fullest extent possible, shelter in place in our home. And whether I get to return to my law firm in Manhattan is a matter for the governor of New York, who has issued an executive order requiring that many places of business uh, reduce their in-place workforce by 100%. And the President of the United States doesn't get to override those executive orders, nor does isolation, uh, social isolation, command a one-size-fits-all solution for the nation. It depends upon each individual community, the density, the nature of the population, the nature of the workforce. And so the goal has to be social isolation, social distancing, but it's up to mayors and governors to command us to do that to various different degrees in various different ways, depending upon their communities. And the role of the federal government is really 
to surge and direct resources to the various communities in this type of crisis through FEMA. FEMA ought to be the centerpiece for all of this, but it's the role of the federal government to ensure that enough test kits, ventilators, respirators, masks, PPE are manufactured, are marshaled, are directed to the communities that really need them so as to avoid a bidding war between and among states for these things. So last week, the president said, we're not shipping clerks. Well, the federal government actually is a shipping clerk in this type of crisis. And the president really is the shipping clerk in chief. The role of the federal government is to regulate our borders externally to regulate who comes in and who goes out of the United States. But in this type of nationwide crisis where the virus is here and the homeland, the role of the federal government is to make sure that local communities have what they need. And I'm concerned that we haven't figured out all those respective roles yet. Jay, I want to ask you a little bit about preparedness, because that obviously was a huge part of your responsibility as uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. And one question I have is, when you were doing various kinds of preparing for the likelihood of, of a pandemic and a public health emergency such as the one we're facing now, doing various kinds of exercises and other kinds of planning, was one of the things that you were concerned about was the kind of how slow-footed the country would be, not just the leadership, but it just has taken a long time for this country and for this government to react and to realize how serious a threat this was, almost a kind of national denial out there. And was that something that you factored in when you were making preparations, the kind of the psychological piece of this? Well, first, after this thing is over, and it will be over at some point, there will be dozens and dozens of IG investigations, congressional committee investigations on the government's response to this. And the favorite Washington question, what did you know? When did you know it? Why didn't you do it sooner? Trying to assess that now at this moment we're in the in the depths of the crisis is a little like trying to assess the government's actions around 9/11 on 9/12 so there will come a time when we will fully assess the government's response and the speed of their response to this virus i'll say two more things one it's been reported that when the outgoing obama cabinet met with the incoming trump cabinet on friday January 13, 2017, one of the very few things we talked about was the prospect and the threat of a lethal virus spreading across the homeland. We had become extremely concerned about another one of these occurring after the Ebola experience. And so when two cabinets meet, you could spend two weeks talking about stuff. Jay, let me, let me interrupt you for a second here. Sorry, but it's more than just What's been reported is more than just a conversation. What's been reported is that Lisa Monaco, who was the Homeland Security Advisor in the White House, led an exercise for the incoming... I was getting to that. All right. Sorry to jump the gun. So we had, we had about two hours, as I recall it. And one of the very few things we did was to go through a tabletop exercise of a lethal virus spreading across the country. And so there was a recognition, at least in the prior administration, that as a matter of homeland security, you have to prepare not just for things like terrorist attacks, but also the threat of a, a lethal virus coming back to the, to the homeland. And I recall the meeting because I sat next to John Kelly, and I recall sitting across from Rex Tillerson. Ryan Priebus was there. Tom Bossert was there. The whole crew was there. Jim Mattis, as I recall it, was there. And someone needs to ask the extent to which that information and that exercise was absorbed on the other side of, of, of the table. You know, we're hearing reports that a lot of that apparatus atrophied after January 2017. And that is probably true within Homeland Security because of the singular focus 
on immigration enforcement. What do you recall about the response or reaction of the incoming Trump folks to the exercise and to the warnings that you were giving them? Not much, and that might be part of the problem. I don't recall much of it. I, you know, I, one person that I've gotten to know over the last couple of years a little bit is Tom Bossert. Tom Bossert struck me as a conscientious, diligent public servant, but, but he's gone now. He's, he's been gone for some time from being the White House Homeland Security Advisor. But this, this would have been, I think, in fairness to Tom at least, something that uh, he would have been very focused on. But he's gone. They, you know, the NSC staff was reshaped, and as I as I understand it, the position was it went for a period of time without being filled. So we are where we are. I think it's been reported that at least one cabinet member, Wilbur Ross, appeared to be sleeping through that briefing. Um, that's that's possible. I don't recall that, but that's possible. That is quite the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> the point is. Well, look, they're going to be people, they're going to be committees, they're going to be IGs who study this for a very long time after. We're in the depths of the crisis right now, and so we need to be focused on the here and now and how we crawl out of this very serious pandemic right now. But can I ask, look, as Homeland Security Secretary, you had to worry about a lot of things, a terrorist attack, a natural disaster, immigration. Where did the threat of a pandemic rank in the problems you were focused on at the time? And I'd I'd like a realistic, honest answer, because you obviously can't be obsessing about everything when you have a job like yours. Um, How much time and attention did you take to the pandemic threat while you were in office compared to everything else you had to worry about? Well, obviously, with the Ebola crisis, it was more than just a threat in the fall of 2014. But the realistic answer to your question, Mike, is this. There are a range of threats to the homeland at any given time, and you can't pay uppermost attention to all of them. And so the way I looked at the various different threats, there were threats that were high probability with perhaps lower impact, and then there were threats that were lower probability with high impact, like the very crisis we're in now. And you got to pay attention to all of it, and you got to figure out a way to prioritize resources, time, and attention to all of it. And so if there is a threat that is perhaps low probability but high impact, somebody's got to be focused on it. Somebody's got to be paying attention to it. But it's not an everyday matter for the Secretary of Homeland Security until you start to see early warning signals that we may be facing something like this. So, Jay, was when Ebola struck, that was 2014, you were already, uh, and you were already Homeland Security Advisor, correct? Yeah. Yes. So, was, so that presumably was sort of your kind of white knuckle moment. Can you describe, was there there a moment when you realized this stuff is real, it's not speculative, it's not way off in the future? I mean, nothing like this had happened, you know, quite like this really in a hundred years. So when was the moment for you when you realized that this is real and this could be catastrophic and this could cost the lives? There There were a series of moments. First, one of the takeaways from the whole experience was that a virus, a spreading virus, creates a level of anxiety that you don't see very often because people don't know where it's going to end. People don't know the extent to which it's going to reach their communities, it's going to affect them or their family members. So there's a tremendous amount of anxiety, and there was a tremendous amount of anxiety in the fall of 2014. And for a while, every time a passenger on a commercial aircraft bound for the United States from wherever was, somebody got sick in the restroom of a commercial aircraft, I would hear about it. It would become a matter for the personal attention of the Secretary of Homeland Security if there was a passenger on a plane coming from someplace. And we all remember the stories about, say, a college student who puts her roommate out because she's developed a head cold, even though she's never 
been to the continent of Africa. And so I recall vividly the level of anxiety. I recall the level of anxiety when the one case popped up in the hospital in Dallas, Texas, and endless meetings at DHS and at the White House about how we were going to deal with this. Ultimately, we were able to take measures to protect the homeland, to funnel air traffic coming from West Africa to five airports in the United States where people received heightened screening and send our military and our health community to West Africa to help stamp out the virus, virus at the at the source of the virus. Now that's that, that comparison is a poor one because this is a very different kind of global virus. It's a different kind of virus emanating from a different place, and it has reached pandemic proportions. But that whole experience, at least in my mind, and certainly in the minds of the people I served with, put the threat of a lethal virus in you know the top five or 10 possible threats facing the homeland. Very definitely. Look, obviously, there's been a lot of scrutiny of the way the president has handled this and certainly the way he seemed to be minimizing the threat in January, February, and even early March has leapt out at a lot of people as an example of him not taking this seriously enough. The White House and the president has said, look, as a matter of practical steps, he did at the end of January ban incoming travel from China, and that was an important step. But what actual real steps beyond that, when you look at his response, should he have taken the president, the administration have taken that they did not do during that time period, January, February, early March? Look, there will be into the future IG investigations, congressional committee investigations into the question of what should the president have done and why didn't he do it sooner? Washington, official Washington is very good at asking itself that question. Now, having said that, it is clear to me that in January into February and perhaps even March, frankly, the president did not appreciate the extent to which this thing could spread and how rapidly it could spread. They thought simply by closing travel from China on January 31 that they could stop the spread of the virus. And that obviously did not happen. Reflecting, I think, sort of a Stephen Miller mindset that if you control the borders, you can prevent things from happening on the homeland. So they tried to limit this by regulating the borders, but it only takes a couple of cases to go from one continent to another to infect a whole continent, which is what has happened here. Now, beyond that, it is clear to me that from his own public statements, the president was not appreciating that this thing was going to get a lot worse. He thought that it was just simply going to disappear after 15, 20 cases. He made statements like that into February, some even into March. He uh, more recently said, it'll all be over by Easter Sunday, and we can go back to work. And that almost certainly has affected the thinking of the people around him who are in a position to make a difference. And so I think that is at the heart of the problem that we face right now going forward. Jay, I got a couple more questions for you. One is the Department of Homeland Security, which um, has sort of been the basket case of this administration. I, I cannot remember how many secretaries and acting secretaries there's been. Frankly, I can't even remember. Do you who know who the, the first one was? <laughs> That I do know. The first one, yes, because you, you, yeah, you've heard me tell this. Uh, the first one was point. the first one was Jay Johnson. Maybe, maybe, you, seven, maybe and now, seven and a half hours, right? Maybe you. So for now on, maybe we will stayed. introduce you as former Trump administration official. <laughs> yeah. No, that's all right. That's all right. I was, it was I was designated survivor on inauguration day, so I served for seven hours and thirty-two minutes into the Trump administration. For the record, but go ahead. All right, but this is the department that is charged with protecting the homeland. 
the homeland needs to be protected right now. Do you have any sense at all of what the role of DHS is? To what extent they are playing a central role in this, how they are doing, and has anybody from DHS reached out to you? This is an all-hands-on-deck moment. I would think you would have things that you might be able to contribute. So tell me a little bit about DHS in this particular moment. Last question first. People from DHS have reached out to me. I'll leave it at that because any private advice I give should remain private. When I was in office, I constantly tried to remind the public of all the different things that DHS did to protect the American public, to protect the homeland. Immigration enforcement got and still gets a lot of attention, but I was constantly reminding the public and our own people of all the things the DHS does, land, sea, air, and in cyberspace to protect the homeland. And when I was in office, I didn't particularly care about the political persuasion, the politics of those who were working for me. My chief of staff was a Republican, at least one, probably two of my undersecretaries were either Republicans or independents. I didn't care about their politics as long as they could do a good job in in homeland security. And I think we enjoyed a fair amount of credibility in Congress and on the Hill. This Department of Homeland Security suffers from two problems. One, the singular focus of the administration on immigration enforcement to the exclusion of a lot of other things. And two, the president's very obvious preference for having people serve as actings in Senate-confirmed roles because he doesn't or doesn't believe he can subject them to Senate confirmation, and he likes having them, and he almost virtually said this, he likes having them sort of on a trial basis in the job without any job security. In that environment, you get poor advice from the people you need to hear difficult advice from, and people are very risk adverse to taking bold steps to do the things they need to do if they're simply there on an acting basis. And so what DHS ought to be doing right now is through its Office of Health Affairs, through TSA, through Customs Border Protection, through the Coast Guard, and most notably through FEMA leading this effort right now. FEMA, under the leadership of Craig Fugate, who served under President Obama, really did bring back, Craig really did bring back FEMA from the Katrina days to the point where it was the government agency most expert on deploying resources quickly and effectively. FEMA, and I don't have the sense that this is true, FEMA ought to be in the center of the federal government's effort to surge and deploy resources right now. And the Secretary of Homeland Security, who is the oversight for FEMA, should have been given responsibility for being able to direct other cabinet-level departments to support FEMA's efforts. And this is a whole-of-government effort. It's not just DHS. It's Commerce. It's Defense. It's HHS and uh, HUD probably, and a couple more I can't even think of. But DHS and FEMA should be at the centerpiece of dealing with a domestic crisis like this. Okay, last question. Since you were charged with defending the homeland security for the entire homeland, I think our listeners might be interested in knowing how you are protecting yourself. How do you social distance? How are you protecting your own health and and that of of your family? How are you living through this personally? Well, thank you for asking. I am uh, staying home at my home in Montclair, New Jersey, spending a lot of quality time and quantity time with my wife and my daughter, my adult daughter, who has uh, left her apartment in New York, and the two dogs. We're spending a lot of time (laughs) together. I spend a lot of time in my den, uh, doing my, my day job from my den. I do TV interviews through Skype, through Zoom, through FaceTime here in my den. I look in on my parents once in a while 
who live in upstate New York. When I do that, I put on the mask and the gloves because as older people, they are in the particularly vulnerable population. And I do walk around the neighborhood, walk the dogs, but unfortunately, we haven't been able to socialize. And what's been interesting is we find ourselves FaceTiming with people that we don't ordinarily connect with in our in our busy life. So that's that's how we've been uh, doing our best to, to stay healthy and safe. Now, there's one more thing I'd like to add, if I could, which I think is very, very important going forward. Sooner or later, we're going to find a vaccine. Could be 18 months, could be 12 months, but sooner or later, we're going to find a vaccine. Sooner or later, we're going to find a treatment for this virus. And sooner or later, we're going to flatten the curve on the spread of the virus. And it will be time to go back to work and to go back to some form of a new normal. We need to start thinking about the circumstances under which we can encourage people to do that. What should be the benchmarks for an employer, for example, to say, okay, people, come back to work or come back to work in a staggered or compartmentalized fashion? What is the benchmark for Governor Cuomo lifting his executive order? We're not going to have a perfectly free, perfectly coronavirus-free society for a very, very, very long time. So there is going to be some risk involved in answering that question. But some people have referred to it as the intersection between protecting our health and protecting the economy. But we're going to have to figure out when it is safe for or reasonably safe for people to start resuming their normal lives. So we need benchmarks for that. And I hope people are thinking about that. The other thing to mention is we may flatten this bell curve, but we're not going to eliminate the virus in its entirety. And there will be another resurgence at some point. The experience with the Ebola virus teaches that. You get through this season, you get through this bell curve, and there will likely be another bell curve, hopefully not as pronounced. Well, uh, Jay Johnson, I want to thank you for joining us. I hope you have a uh, comfy, well-stocked den for the foreseeable future, because it sounds like you'll be spending a lot of time there. But uh, thanks, uh, thanks again for being on Skullduggery. Thanks to Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut and former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.